Welcome to Perfecting Motion, Tribology, and the Quest for Sustainability, a new STLE podcast series that talks with industry professionals about current issues and trends impacting the global tribology and lubricants community. Here's your host, Neil Cantor, STLE advisor, technical programs and services. We started to gain a better understanding of how the raw materials used in the manufacture of lubricants can be designed to be sustainable in our last episode when we discussed how waste plastic can be converted into fuels and lubricants. Waste plastics are polymers produced through chemical manufacturing. With all the raw materials used to produce lubricants derived from chemical processing, we need to get a better understanding of how they can be designed to facilitate the production of more sustainable lubricants to help us move along in our continuing quest for perfecting motion. This leads us to the topic of green chemistry. Many of you who are not chemists in all probability consider the term green chemistry to be, well, contradictory. After all, how can chemistry, which has the connotation of high energy usage, high temperature processing, the potential generation of dark and malodorous chemicals, be green? As a chemist, I've grown over the years to recognize that our standard of living would not be where it is without the discovery of chemical technologies that we need to carry on with our lives each and every day. Whether we need to drive to the grocery store, take an airplane from point A to point B, or in the case of a lubricant, be used to ensure that wind turbines can continue to generate power sustainably. To gain a better perspective on green chemistry and its impact on facilitating the development of raw materials to be used in lubricants, we are very fortunate to have Dr. David Constable, Science Director for the American Chemical Society's Green Chemistry Institute with us. David, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thanks very much, Neil. Pleasure to be here. And let me begin here by really some definitions. So why don't we start with the first base definition? What is green chemistry? So green chemistry, as you know, has been variously defined by different groups of people. The way I look at it is really, it's a way of thinking about chemistry and how one practices chemistry. And one does that by three main ideas. One is to maximize resource efficiency, so that's mass and energy inputs. The second, which is the more or less the way people classically look at green chemistry, which is the reduction and elimination or reduction or elimination of toxic substances and pollution. And then the third bucket is to think about chemistry from a systems and life cycle perspective. Okay. So let's continue on. We use the word sustainability a lot in this podcast. So talk about this and what it is from your perspective and how sustainability, the term relates to green chemistry. So green chemistry is uh, positioned at the center. Think of a sphere. It's at the center. And so that's the way you think about chemistry. Outside of that inner sphere of green and sustainable chemistry is life cycle thinking. And outside of that is systems thinking slash sustainability. And what I mean by that is sustainability is historically or traditionally thought of as a triple bottom line approach, which means you need to simultaneously consider and optimize the interaction between economic issues, societal issues and environmental issues. So 
Lifecycle is a tool that's used. We'll talk more about this probably later, but it's a tool that you allows you to think about what's green and sustainable. And then most of sustainability, you have to understand, is a systems level problem. Okay, a very large scale, either earth systems or societal level or economic system issue that you need to think about. So that's how I think about sustainability. So why don't we build on your response and thank you for that and and talk about life cycle analysis itself. What is it and how should it be used to determine if, let's say, a specific chemical substance or substances is green slash sustainable? So there are two ways to think about life cycle. One way is life cycle thinking. And life cycle thinking is just, okay, I need to think about a product, for example. So I have a lubricant. I need to think about that lubricant from raw material extraction all the way through end-of-life considerations, right? And think about it from, okay, what are the environment, health, and safety issues that attend each step of that path from raw material extraction. So you said you talked about it from plastics. Well, you have to consider how plastics are made, right? You know, you derive it from ethylene or propylene, for example, and, you know, you go through it. It has a useful life and then it gets pyrolyzed into a starting product for a lubricant or a fuel, right? That life cycle would look at every step of that process from raw material all the way through what happens to that lubricant when I'm done with it or to the car that's, you know, the wheel bearings that are being lubricated, you know, what happens to those things when they're done their useful life. And so that's life cycle thinking. Life cycle inventory assessment is a very detailed analytical process by which you look at inputs and outputs of every process. And you do a summing up or a cumulative estimation of certain life cycle impact categories. So like greenhouse gases, that's the favorite for life cycle. So people look at the cumulative life cycle CO2 emissions associated with a lubricant from raw material extraction all the way through end-of-life considerations. Very good. Thank you on that. So then let's bring in a few more terms, which sort of confuse the mix, in my opinion, a bit, but I think certainly need to be discussed because people will think about them when they think about something that's green and think about sustainability. And that is terms environmentally friendly, biodegradable, biodegradability, and bio-based. These have all been widely used. How do these factor in? How do these relate to green chemistry and sustainability? In other words, are they just marketing type terms or do they mean something a little bit more substantial? They're more having to do with sustainability than green chemistry. So green chemistry really is focused on chemistry and the transformations that one has around chemistry. And it has a little bit to say about raw materials, but mainly that's that's the province of, of green chemistry. So environmentally friendly to me is a greenwashing term. There isn't very little specificity to it. It's like environmentally friendly or environmentally preferred or whatever it happens to be. To me, I run away from that kind of a term. I really do not like to use it. Um, Bio-based means that a certain percentage of the carbon that's in your lubricant, for example, comes from 
a biologically derived source. So it's biomass of some kind, and it could be algae producing an oil, which is further changed into a lubricant or something like that. Or it could be you can pyrolyze biomass and create a crude naphtha stream to build into a lubricant. So that's all that means is the percentage of carbon that came from a bio-based source at some point in time. And there's some really detailed work that's been done by companies like BASF, which have looked at a mass balance approach for getting into bio-based and being very analytic about it. I personally prefer degradability because when you talk about the environment, you can find mechanisms to chemically degrade So for example, light can degrade things, air can degrade things and create a pathway to decompose that chemical. And then that's different from biodegradability, which has to do largely with living systems degrading your material. So, you know, it goes into a composting situation or something like that where it's biodegradable. Right. And, and I think one of the things that doesn't help here is there's inherent biodegradability, there's uh, readily biodegradable, et cetera. I don't want to go into those terms, but <laughs> help the process in terms of the confusion. So let's move on and talk about the role, at least in green chemistry, and some of this touch upon from the lubricant perspective is as some of these certification programs have, uh, like the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture's Biopreferred Program, or the EU, the European Union has an eco-label type program. What role do they play in defining substances that are green and sustainable, in your view? In my view, they are frameworks to evaluate the percentage of your product that comes from a bio-based source. So that gets back into that discussion we just had about bio-based and renewable. And they just again, provide the framework for evaluating whether or not it it comes from a bio-based source. So in terms of sustainability, the implicit assumption is, is that something that comes from a biologically derived source is more sustainable than something that comes from petroleum or from fossil carbon. So that's the... Right. Understood. So let's go into some of this content that you've dealt with in in your role with the American Chemical Society. You have uh, talked about and and, uh, done a lot with sustainability development goals. Talk about what they are. So there are 17 sustainable development goals that the UN promulgated in 2015 for completion by 2030. These goals are largely goals for nation states or government bodies to actually deliver on, but they are composed of a goal and a bunch of targets. What a lot of people don't know is you have these 17 goals, which are like responsible consumption and production, for example, which the lubricants industry can talk about a lot of things that they can do under responsible consumption production. There are a bunch of targets that are under those goals. And those targets are very specific actions, which again, governments are supposed to be taking. So it's in the targets that I think you'll see the most connections to your industry and how your industry will feed into that particular target. The other thing I will say is that many of these are cross-related. So in other words, you can talk about responsible consumption production, but you could also at the same time look at connections with climate. You can 
talk about connections to land type issues and water type issues in terms of emissions and so on and so forth. So you have to appreciate that there's a lot of connectivity between the sustainable development goals, but ultimately go for the targets and look at where the connections are. Fair enough. So one of the things that the American Chemical Society did was prioritize seven of these goals. So talk about how that was done and what are the seven sustainability development goals that the American Chemical Society prioritized? Stepping back just a bit, the reason it came up with seven is because there are some that we're already doing and we didn't feel was necessary for us to call out. So, for example, quality education, gender equality and partnerships for the goals. Those are things, they're just three of several that we're doing and it's kind of written into what the ACS is about. The other seven are zero hunger, good health and well-being, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, industries, innovation and infrastructure, responsible consumption and production, and climate action. And the reason that these were chosen is looking at the targets and thinking about what are the goals that chemists could connect to the most easily, the best, have the biggest impact of the ones that were listed there. So I've listed the seven and the ones that, or the organization felt that were most easily connected to chemists and what chemists can and are doing. So for example, in Zero Hunger, we have an agrochemical division, agro and food division, and you know, so on and so forth. In energy, affordable and clean energy, we have several divisions that are devoted to thinking about energy and fuels and things like that. So that's really why those seven were chosen as they were the ones that most closely aligned to readily identifiable things that the society is doing. Fair enough. And thank you. Let's pick up on number seven, affordable and clean energy, because frankly, for us in the lubricant and tribology field, that is a key thing for us in terms of what we're trying to do to help facilitate those through the development and use of high-performance lubricants to help with things like wind turbines, which I mentioned at the beginning, the introduction to the podcast, solar, and other areas in terms in terms of what we're doing. So talk about how the connection what's going on in affordable and clean energy from your perspective, the American Chemical Society perspective. So we can see, we can tie that in with what we're doing on the lubricant and tribology end. Well, there is so much that the ACS is doing. Like I said, there are several divisions which program on a regular basis at national meetings. So for example, energy and fuels. And so there's a whole series of things that are going to be related to that. There are other divisions that So even in the agro division, for example, they can talk about bio-based materials that can go into creating oils and things like that. So there's a whole series, again, of programming and activities that lead it or contribute to thinking about affordable and clean energy. Fair enough. And how much of a role or tie-in has there been with lubricants and tribology in terms of doing that? Because as I've wrote in the question, what might be the role of lubricants tribologies in helping uh, you know, to achieve sustainability goal number seven? Seems to be apparent that they can help facilitate affordable and clean energy. Has that moved into some of the areas where your divisions have been working to reach this goal? To be honest, not so much. I mean, the ACS does a lot of great things, but it has a very traditional approach to many things. So by that, I mean, there are certain areas of chemistry, say materials, where 
there's been a whole other organism, Materials Research Society, that has been created to think about the interface of materials chemistry. The same is true around lubricants is that your organization, you know, is created to promote lubricants and the connections to lubricants and chemistry. So the ACS is not as involved. That doesn't mean that there is nothing going on, but I don't know that there's a huge amount that goes on in terms of lubricants. Well, then perhaps, and this may be the beginning of what we're trying to do here, there could be a connection between the two of us. This is why we're talking today, why I have you for this podcast, in terms of helping as we move along with the quest and the goal to move forward with sustainability and getting down the road where this could help, linking the two of us together to work together and helping to achieve that goal from both your end, from the chemistry end, and from our end, the lubricant and tribology end. No, absolutely. I would agree 100%. Good. All right. So let's finish up here by talking a little bit about what's your assessment on the future of green chemistry and sustainability. So here we are. It's the second quarter as we we record this of 2022. Where are we and where is this headed from the green chemistry sustainability standpoint? There is still a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. I talk about this all the time in terms of if you look at the number of patents, for example, that are related to green and sustainable chemistry, it's really a vanishingly small number of patents. And now while patents may not as good an indicator of uh, translation of academic research into industry, it's, it's a pretty good one. Uh, it's the best we've got. I would say that some industries have picked up green and sustainable chemistry more than others. So the pharma industry by leaps and bounds is way further along the scale. The chemical industry, not so much. And there's a lot more work that can be done in in the chemical industry to make it greener and more sustainable. And that's worldwide. That's just not the U.S. There's, There's just a tremendous amount. If you look at, for example, most chemical production has shifted to China. And the reason a lot of it has shifted there is because they're willing to take the environmental hit, whereas the West is not. So there's a tremendous opportunity in the reshoring of the chemical industry to the United States to actually do it differently and do it in a greener, more sustainable manner. And that's really where I'm hoping things head. And could you almost argue that this, the pandemic and supply chain crisis, if you will, which I would call a crisis, is facilitating that type of reshifting, not just for North America, but perhaps even for the EU as well. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. The other thing, frankly, that's shifting it is is just the the amount of hydraulic fracturing that's taking place in this country. And so you're seeing a renaissance in the petrochemical industry because of the amount of fossil carbon that's that's being created here. So you you are seeing lots more plastics manufacturing be reassured here for that. But again, that's not necessarily green. It's not necessarily sustainable, but that's why you're seeing a shift. Right. And the argument could be made, a lot of it's been on the Gulf Coast, but there's at least one plant, and I don't want to get commercial here in this podcast, but at least one plant that has been publicized heavily is getting ready to go commercial in the mid-Atlantic region of the U.S. Yes. From that standpoint. So what steps should a lubricant manufacturer take if they're looking at their raw materials and things are chaotic now, as you know, with the supply chain, I'm sure you know, from that standpoint, but what steps should they look at if they want to be more sustainable? How should they look to see, determine if the raw materials are in fact that they're formulating with, because lubricants are formulated products, much like cleaners and cosmetics, et cetera. How should they 
look to see what they can do to figure out if their products are, in fact, the raw materials used to make their products are green and sustainable. So for me, the, one of the most exciting things is, and this may be a few years down the pike, but is really around synthetic biology and tailored oils. And that is that you use microorganisms to design the oil of your choosing. That's very doable. There have been companies that have come into existence and have gone out of business because they're a little bit ahead of their time, but you can dial in properties very easily that way. And to me, that is the future without a question of making the industry more sustainable. It isn't, for example, you know, going after monocultures like palm oil and things like that. I don't think that's the right direction. I do sincerely believe that the future is in microorganisms and in tailoring them to make what you want by design. Right. And, and, and obviously one of the challenges is to make that commercially viable so that it can compete right. the palm oils of the world, palm oil, the tallow feedstocks, and uh, uh, you could argue the uh, rapeseed type uh, uh, products right. that are in the EU. So all of those that are more readily available. Sunflower is another one, but uh, understood. So how quickly do you see the chemical industry moving into this way, moving its products, its manufacturing products, moving in these, taking these steps to become more green and sustainable. Obviously, there have been challenges, supply chain, pandemic that may be hindering some of this, but it's moving forward in that direction, David, I assume. I'm hopeful at least. So how quickly is it moving and uh, when are we going to see more progress, frankly? One of the problems with all those sources you mentioned, you know, like rapeseed or sunflower oil, whatever, my understanding is that the chemical industry requires specifications that don't change. And one of the problems with natural products is getting that oil or whatever it happens to be that, that feedstock to meet certain specifications consistently in significant quantities or the required quantities that make you a reliable supplier, right? And that still is something that is not worked out yet, in my opinion. So I think that the industry wants it. There's a lot of demand on the part of customers who want greener, more sustainable products. But again, cost they're not willing to pay a larger cost for that. So it's got to be done in a way that is cost competitive to the incumbent, which is petrochemically based feedstock. And like you said, it's evolving, it's coming, but there's still a lot of issues that need to be worked out in the supply chain. So I guess the message from the lubricant tribology perspective is the chemical industry is, understands the challenges here, is trying to move in that direction. There are obstacles here, but it's moving in that direction towards sustainability, towards green, and towards using these type of tailored technologies, which will get us to that goal Yeah, sooner than later. Yeah, it'll take time. Good. David, thank you. I appreciate your insights, uh, your comments, and as being very valuable for our podcast. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Perfecting Motion, Tribology, and the Quest for Sustainability, brought to you by the Society of Tribologists and Lubrication Engineers, the premier technical society serving the tribology and lubrication industry. STLE's mission is to advance the science of tribology and the practice of lubrication engineering in order to foster innovation, improve the performance of equipment and products, conserve resources, and protect the environment. 
STLE supports its members with a variety of technical, educational, and professional development resources and programs. To learn more about STLE, please visit our website at www.stle.org.